We'll get Catherine up here to answer uh, any of your very pressing or otherwise uh, interesting questions and see what sort of discussion we can get going. Thank you very much for your fabulous presentation. Thank you. I have a much more pessimistic view of the future of our world because some of the old attitudes are so entrenched in judiciary system, political system, which is basically an adversarial way of conducting business. I was once involved in a murder case as an interpreter, so I went through the whole process with the accused and defense team, occasionally from Crown. And I was absolutely appalled to see how our judiciary process is conducted. They are not interested in truth. They're interested in who wins, who loses. And uh, our po uh, the way our politics is being conducted is the same. They're not interested in welfare people. They're interested in who wins and who loses. Therefore, I have a great expectation for women's ability to listen to chit-chat for a long time. Whenever my wife starts talking and starting to report what happened at the university, I said, come to the point. <laughs> Mainly me. I would like to find the result. Who wins? Who loses? It's me. And I think I am representative of that basic problem of our society. <laughs> no, no, you're not the problem. You're part of a system that has created this idea in your head. But I, I lived in that uh, kind of a mentality all my life. So every time somebody starts telling us, me a story, I say, come to the point. Come on. I've got two more minutes. Yeah, I know. We're doing our communication in sound bites now, right? So what are you going to do about this fundamental way that we have organized our society? It's a big task. It's hard to change. It's, it will lead to the war. Thank you. Well, I, I, think, I think you've opened this question up very well. Um, I don't think you're part of the problem. I don't think anybody is the problem. But we all have resistance to change. And that's what you're really talking about. I grew up this way. It's been this way. I don't know any other way. And I'm really not that sure that doing it different is going to feel that much better. And, 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 and you know, when we accept the world the way it is, and by that I mean, you know, when, when, when uh, someone said to me one time, oh, you've got to learn to shorten your answers. People only listen to sound bites now. Now, if I believe that was true and that's all anyone wanted to hear, I wouldn't say much at all. And perhaps that's what some people do want. They don't really want to hear. They don't want to hear the opportunities and the vision. They just want to know who's going to win and who's going to lose. And what I'm suggesting is maybe we can play a different game. You know, when I look at hockey, 
I have a niece who plays hockey, and I have several nephews who play. And it's great. But it doesn't matter if I'm watching my niece or my nephews. It's still hockey. And if we um, dressed her up in a little pink equipment and put flowers all over her stick, the objective of that game is to get the pucks in the net. That's the game. That's the rules. It's still going to be hockey. The uh, dressing room's going to reek like sweat, even if we serve tea and have a daycare and, you know, the whole thing. It's hockey. If we're going to play war, and by war, I don't just mean, you know, combat war. I mean the war of the sexes. I mean the war in our families. I mean the war that is the language we're using. I do believe we can have win-win. You know, in a family, I don't, you know, look at my kids and say, well, who's going to eat tonight? You win. Everybody else loses. What the heck kind of a world would that be? So we really want different, then we're going to have to, and it'll take some adjustment to, to learn to not use that language. Who won? You know, who won at school today? Everybody went. Everybody learned something. Everybody won. Not who got the A. You know, I used to think that that was kind of ridiculous when people started to uh, say, oh, all of the kids participated and they all got a ribbon. And I thought, well, that's silly. Where's, it, where's the motivation? Where's the drive? But because I was thinking about who's winning. I forgot about participation is fun. It's learning a skill. It's it, that you're winning. Whatever it is you're doing, you're learning. You already are winning. You're always winning. So you don't have to lose. And if we can accept each other that way, we're all winners. And stop saying, ah, that guy's not so successful. How do you know if he's successful? You know, how do you know? We judge each other by these very narrow, narrow boxes we put people in. We could do better. We can do different. Hi, I'm Bev Lindell-Atherstone. Thank you very much for your talk. Thank you. I think it is a real problem when we're looking at the dominant discourse and there are other discourses trying to fight their way in. Uh, it's been a battle I've been fighting my entire life. And <clears throat> I started off my career as a teacher. And that's exactly what we tried to change is going from the, the um, fighting discourse into a collaborative or cooperative discourse. But I have a happier view of life than Tad <laughs> because <laughs> I have seen so much change in my lifetime and especially growing up during the 60s where we created a revolution and it was the women's revolution that helped um, create change and creating that difference that you talk about. But still, as Tad said, we were fighting tremendous um, old bureaucratic styles that um, keep us entrenched even when women do get into politics. So I guess I'm wondering how can we create a new revolution, a social revolution, in which these things actually change and that when you're put into the situation, you're just not co-opted into the situation. Like we have women MPs and women MLAs and uh, in various parties, but they still are only allowed so many questions in Parliament, so many questions in the ledge. They're only allowed to do certain things because that system is so tight. So how would you see a revolution coming about? Thank you for that question. I love it. Um, the first part of this is I go back to language. When the early women's revolution 
began, the, the one that got us the vote. It wasn't individual women at home saying to their husband, who at that time had the power in society, please go and get me my vote. Please go and talk to someone and ask them to give me permission so that I can vote. We didn't do that. Women didn't do that. The more educated women became, the more they started to see what was going on in the world, they came together. They talked to their neighbor. They talked to, there were women who did not get involved at all in that, in that pursuit of, of the right to vote. They didn't, they were afraid. They weren't empowered. They didn't feel that they could. But there were other women who did. <clears throat> but they didn't do it alone. They came together to create what they wanted. <clears throat> Excuse me. And what I find is that we've been doing it the similar, but we've not been talking to each other, and we've not been expressing it. We have been using the language uh, that does not describe what we want at all. We want inclusion. We do not want to hold seats in the legislature or in parliament and, and just be there as a token woman. We don't want that. That is not going to bring us anything different than what we already have, and we know that. But we are going to have to come together. And in the past, it was women that had to come together. They had to do it themselves. This time, what I see is men and women coming together. I don't know about each individual man, but a lot of men I hear are expressing they are sick and tired of being blamed for everything that's gone on in this world, especially white men. You know, it seems like because they, they, unfortunately, they have been the oppressors, you know, throughout history. But it's, like I said, it's not entirely a true story. And we have to get to the truth. And the truth is, it's going to take men and women, and we are going to have to have that mutual respect to listen to the whole thought. To not just get to the who's going to win and who's going to lose. But what's the thought behind this? and to come together. And it isn't going to happen through our current media, perhaps, maybe not through our current newspapers. We're going to have to actually go out and get it, the same way as women had to go out, join together, and get and demand their right to vote. But if it's both men and women, we are not going to have such a it's not going to require a violent situation. The younger generation is not going to be coming at it from the same points that we did. My sons do not see women as less than. I mean, when my sons were growing up, they, all, they knew how to cook, how to iron, how to clean. My husband looked at me and said, well, what are they going to need a wife for? I said, are you nuts? That's the whole point. I want them to be able to function. And when they meet a woman, she will come to, to them with the same qualities. And they will join together, not because she's going to serve him. No, that's a different world. It's a different world. And that's what's going to happen is these kind of conversations. Our youth coming together, men and women, and us supporting them. Well, that is, that is very good. That is very true. That was my point earlier. How can we really seriously be enemies? Who do we sleep with? I mean, really. We're not all spies.
Catherine, thank you very, very much. We share a lot of the same language. Great. Uh, we talk opportunity, choice, evolution. I have a really keen interest in the youth. I've said for many years that they have such brilliance, and uh, we can learn from them. And I want to be able to impress and help them. What, in your opinion, is the best venue, the best medium? How do we do that so that we can help them in their evolution, give them our knowledge, look at the knowledge in this room, and, and so that they, uh, they evolve the way that they should be, that they grow. Well, they're evolving. With, they are. Without our help in that <laughs> sense. But we can enjoy something really fantastic if we embrace what's coming to us. When I was a child and, and, and if I had a, what I thought was a brilliant idea, I was often told by the adults at the time, you haven't lived enough to have that opinion. Wait till you get to be my age, then you can talk about it. Um, I was often told that, you know, and I had a lot of opinions when I was young, but uh, younger. But uh, so today we want to invite these, our young people to the table. They are, I was just expressing to these young ladies who I'm so impressed are here today, they are the future and they are interested in, in, in what's going on in the world. But we, need, we have the ability, let's just say, we have the ability to empower them. There is nothing that feels more um, right than a young person who's got an idea and, uh, and, and, but isn't quite sure of, of themselves in the world. And someone who's, you know, got a few more years under their belt can actually say, well, you know what, talk to this person. Or uh, maybe you could do this. And it sort of help them to bring it forward. Give them maybe some financial resources to bring an idea forward. Whatever it is, but listen to them, hear them. Um, empower them not as an extension of you, if you're a parent, um, know that your child is their own person. And that empowerment at the dinner table, you know, get them to bring their, if you have children, get them to bring their friends home. Have discussions um, around the dinner table just spontaneously that really um, uh, offers them the opportunity to bring their ideas forward in a safe place. That's oftentimes the most um the thing that holds people back is because, you know, you've got an idea and you think it may be a good one, but if you bring it forward in the wrong place, you were told to put that idea back. Don't bring that out. We've tried that before. It doesn't work. Or, you know, who do you think you are? Or you don't have the resources. Or all the reasons why not. And that's the kind of thing that, that will push a person down, a young person or any of us, really, but it, it keeps them from moving forward. And if we really want to propel them forward as teachers, as, as community uh, situations such as this, as even in the supermarket, when you see someone in a situation where there's a, an opportunity for you to say, hey, you're impressive, in your own way, you know, you don't have to go around and tell everybody, hey, you're impressive. But, you know, if you want to, that works too. I mean, really we need to let people know how important every single one of us is and how you just might have that key. You just might have that key to that door that opens that, blows open wide to the future that we really want. I mean, we look at all the different inventions over the years. If each one of those dreamers 
kept them to themselves, we would not be in as good a situation as we are. And that's what we have to, 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 to get across to our youth is that we're so very glad they're here. And not, you know, not put the burden on to them. I don't mean, when I say you're the future, I'm not trying to say, oh, we left you with a big pile of dishes, hey, hey, you know. No. It's an opportunity. We are right on the cusp of a really, really fantastic world. And they are part of it. Uh, personally, I intend to be here for another 200 years, and I'm going to be watching. But I'm just saying, like, it's not just your world. But it's really something that we need to share in the development. Uh, Ian McKenna, um, great, uh, great talk, great subject. Um, the depressing part for me, I'm just retired from the University of Lethbridge, uh, where a lot of these youth that you're talking about uh, that, that we're looking for. And uh, sadly, I'm finding and, and found that uh, the most important thing is they get a job. They're, some big corporation will get... I, I believe the government is even doing this, where they're saying, if you agree with us, we'll give you a job. Uh, I saw that in the paper today. And uh, you'll qualify for it. And uh, really, um, it gets to Tad's point. This is really, really difficult. How are we going to, to deal with this when we've already sort of um, uh, got universities essentially run by corporations? <laughs> I mean, they are in terms of any research. You want to do any research at the university, uh, you need to have a partner. Uh, who is this partner? Uh, well, the, uh, so you want government money. The partner has got to be a corporation, essentially. And, of course, it's going to be doing something that is going to uh, fulfill the needs of corporations, which is profit. I mean, that's basically what we got. So in, in a, a society where um, money and profit and so on is so important, I guess my question that uh, I need to find an answer for is, what do you think would be the, the way to go about this, to, to, to make a, a really quantum leap? And it, I think it really has to be that. Uh, to, to piddle around, I don't think, is, uh, is going to deal with it. But I do think that is one of the problems that we, you know, in, in doing what you want. I, uh, thank you for that question. That's excellent. Um, I wrote an article a couple of years ago. It was called um, Education versus Indoctrination. It's on my website. You can, you can still read it. I was amazed at how that article um, was so well received in places all over the world. I, um, I, was, I was explaining earlier um, um, to Susan, I had a response from a, a lecturer at a university in Pakistan who said that he was looking at this very subject and he found my article most interesting and so he was using it as part of his lecture series. Then I had a fellow from... Uh, um, Oh, for Pete's sake, slips my mind. Another country, that, uh, different language and everything. It was a radio announcer. And he had found someone to interpret it, read it on the air, was dis distributing my, the, the speech or the, the article all over the place because people have figured this out. What you're talking about is not education. You're talking about indoctrination into a system. If we want little robots, we want people to perform as without thinking, without thought, to represent uh, whatever it happens to be, corporation or otherwise. It could be religion. It could be anything. There's all kinds of ways that we can actually capture the youth and make it what it is, what certain people want it to be. 
And for me, the key is to understand and to, uh, to see it happening. Because any time you shed a light, you shine a light on something, it becomes exposed. It becomes whatever it is, is revealed. So it's the, when they say, you know, the truth will set you free, yes, and sometimes it really ticks you off. We need to know that this is happening, and we need to decide for ourselves. Um, do we really want to... Um, have our children not thinking. I mean, the fact that to even have this discussion for this length of time is really a rare thing. It truly is. I mean, when you think about it, we are asking our children to get their education from our television, which is also full of, you know, if you want to be a success in life, you have to do this, this, and this, and buy this, this, and this. And so even, I mean, this is part of the reason that the, the book that I published a couple of years ago, uh, Father Walter Kruski's book, I didn't go to a publisher. I formed my own company because he was never politically correct, and neither am I. And I knew that if I actually wanted to say what he was saying, I had to do it myself. And that's what you're talking about, is to, we need to find avenues to uh, challenge the system to allow that thought to come out. And I'm not saying it's going to happen overnight, but since you've spoken it, we're thinking about it, and who knows where it'll take us. Thank you. Thank you for your speech. My name is Barbara Warren. And I did hear you just now say you had a website. But I think for the young people, their whole communication is so different from when we women were fighting just for the right to have a job with the same pay. And they have Twitter, they have blogs, and you can mobilize so quickly now through the Internet. And are you doing anything like that from your website? I'm not doing anything in the sense of uh, physical mobilization. I got out of politics exactly for the reason that, that this gentleman was speaking of, because the system itself, uh, it, it didn't matter what your beliefs were. It didn't matter what you thought. It didn't matter if you wanted to be in integrity and honesty and if that's what you wanted. Everybody said it was great um, to get you to run and, or become part of their party or whatever it was, but once you were there, you needed to conform. And so what I'm doing right now, I, as I said, I took... Three years it's been since I was part of a political party, and I've decided to just explore, to speak, to listen, to research, to begin that conversation. And so, no, I'm not suggesting you know, this kind of uh, mobilization that you're speaking of, but I'm not suggesting that it's not a good idea. I'm just saying, first we need to have this conversation. We need to find the language. There's no point in mobilizing people to speak the same old language and get better than, than what we had. No, if we want different, we need to paint a different picture. We will need to have that vision and speak it. So thank you. Hi, my name is Bob Campbell, and you've almost answered my question with your last comments, but... I'll just make a comment, and maybe you can comment on that. Uh, when I first saw the topic of, uh, you know, women leaders being better and so on, I, I immediately thought of Margaret Thatcher. And uh, I thought, no, I don't think so. In any event, um, if you look into the, uh, the, when the Soviet Union began to crumble, uh, we talk a lot about the role that the United States under Ronald Reagan made, and the Americans like to take 
credit that he's the one that made that happen. But in truth, it was already happening because people were gathering in circles, like you talked about. Small groups of people all over the former Soviet Union were gathering in small groups and having discussions. There's got to be a better way. And so ultimately, when it happened, the tipping point had been reached and it happened very quickly. And most people, of course, were astounded that it had happened so quickly. The problem, and you did address it a little bit in your last comments, what took place afterwards, they had nowhere to go. And I think that's where that needs to be thought out a lot better. And so I'd just like to have your comments on that. That's exactly what I'm saying. I could have stepped away from politics, frustrated, wringing my hands, and said, you know what, I'm just not doing this anymore. But I got into politics. I was invited into politics because I was speaking out on the things that I was passionate about. So the passion hadn't gone away. I just noticed that that was not my vehicle. I didn't want to play that game that way. I knew there was a different way for me, that I could really sleep at night, that I could feel good about myself. So I started to pursue that. And that is basically what I've been doing. And I think that part of the problem is that even though technology is allowing us to communicate with people all over the world, it tends to taking us away from the people we are closest to. Because, you know, when I walk into the supermarket, you know, if I bump into someone in the aisle and I, you know, say, excuse me, I tend to one, they've got a phone in their ear, and so they don't even hear me. They just nod and walk away. There's no connection. We're not talking to each other. So, you know, part of this goes back to the first question, what can we do? We can have open dialogue in libraries, in places where we can have a mixture and we can support each other, a mixture of male, female, younger, older people, you know, bringing ideas together and birthing what we really want. And we, I really think that, I'm not saying that the technology isn't good, it's good, it's just another tool and if we use it properly, it will take us to where we want to go. But, um, and, and I really think it's important that we um, let go of the language of what happened before was so wrong. They were so bad. That was so whatever. Because really and truly, if we stay there, you know, even the thing about the corporations and the money and the whatever, that whole thing is changing. It is falling apart for a reason. It doesn't work. It just doesn't work. It doesn't support us. We're not here just to make money. You know, I mean, we can't eat it. We can't wear it. I mean, we really do need to, to have different goals. Well, not different goals, but different language to express our goals. And we need to have a place to have that dialogue. And I think you're absolutely right. We need to have that in place. This is, we are almost at the tipping point. We're not at the end of the world. We're at the beginning of the new world. Great. Uh, my name is James Moore. Um, very interesting, the idea of difference. But i just like to you to comment on something that I've observed about language um, and how I see it in terms of maturity. Because obviously these men and women have to have a certain level of development believe in development and be mature in accepting or, or searching for the difference. And, and the example I'm going to give you is this, um, what I've heard from um, 
Reg Hillier, from Rick Kassan, from John Manley, from Stephen Harper, from David Berkison. They've said, we must pay the price in blood and treasure so that we can be one of the big boys. And the uh, question is, um, should we be um, fulfilling their puerile fantasies rather than taking the direction you're speaking? Well, um, pay the price. How much does it cost? How, much, how, much, how many lives do we have to give for this? How, how, for how long? Have we not been paying the price? Have we not been continually just, you know, mothers um, carrying babies in their wombs, raising them up like I did, and then watching them go off to war? Um, where, when will this end? And the, and the point of your, what you're saying is, if we want to be one of the big boys. And I've heard this too. I, I heard this from General Hillier was, you know, Canadians were trained to kill and kill we will. That was not the military. My husband served in the military. He was in Germany. That was not the military he served in. That was not our role. And so, but now we're in this, again, it's still the same language of war. We are competing. We want to get there first. We want to show how powerful we can be. Well, that isn't even power. It's just not even civilized. War is not civilized. There have been times in our history when war was necessary. I really believe there were. There were times when we were absolutely having to um, intervene before you know, some situations became worse because people's lives were on the line. What we see today is power. It's a thirst for power, a thirst for greed. It's just insatiable, the appetite. How much money will be enough? How much oil? How much whatever? Don't look for alternatives. And we all, I think, probably have seen somewhere um, little, little bits and pieces that there are alternatives to energy. There is free energy that we could be using. It's available. We're not pursuing that. So we have to just kind of let go. If those guys want to pursue that blood and guts and war and whatever, I really truly believe we should rent a room for them. <laughs> truly. Anyone wants it, we can put, you know, make it really bulletproof and put them in there and give them all the weapons they want. Go to it. And let us figure out a different way to live. That's what we want. A different way to live. And I truly, I don't think that another drop of blood from anybody, anybody, is going to be enough for them. It's just not. The price is too high. And as I mentioned before, death isn't the worst part. It's the living with it afterwards. And it isn't just the soldier that lives with it. It's the families. And it's their generations that come after them. This is what we have to think about. It's not just this. I'm not talking about just a formula. Okay, find a language, get some women together, let's change the world. No. We have got to decide we're ready to change who we are, how, what we believe, uh, you know, how we deal with each other in our relationships. It, there, you know, the idea of finding peace within before you can see it in your outer is so true. It's not a new age kind of thing. You have to get to that point where you just don't want to do battle anymore. Not because you're a coward. 
But because you figured out there's a different way. I absolutely love you. You've been fantastic. You've just absolutely brought this to another level, and I intend to go further in my research, further in my writings, and who knows. But I do fully believe we have the power if we want to. If we want to settle for better, believe me, we can do it. 